Assalamu alaikum. I wanted to do an episode on the um, horrific murder of um, George Floyd. However, I didn't want to do an episode where I'm just condemning everything which every human being in the world who has an ounce of, you know, goodness in them would do. I wanted to understand the structural and the historical reasons for incidents like this happening uh, over and over again. And alhamdulillah, my husband on his podcast, a Thinking Muslim podcast, had a really interesting conversation with um, Hakeem Muhammad, who is an African-American Muslim, and he works with the Muslim community and the non-Muslim community in America. And so again, I wanted to share this conversation with you, which you will be hearing. Um, he's part of an organization called the Black Dower Movement. I support that organization. You can, and I would they're, they're on Instagram and they also have a website. So, you know, definitely have a look at, you know, what the work they're doing and support it, inshallah, if you feel it's good. So, um, inshallah, I hope you find that the, the episode today um, enlightens you on the causes for why um, murders like this continue to happen in America. We got gunshots, guys. We want to see the system that sets up for systemic racism burnt to the ground. Radical left criminals, thugs, will not be allowed to set communities ablaze. We won't let it happen. Let him breathe, Leaf, man. Let him breathe. I've been trying to hear about it. For over 10 minutes, George Floyd was slowly asphyxiated to death by a smirking police officer as helpless onlookers pleaded for humanity. What seemed more chilling was not the sadist applying his knee upon Mr. Floyd's neck, but his partner holding back the crowd, like a warden at the door of a camp. If there was ever a scene that acted as a metaphor for something bigger, it was the pitiful murder of a man begging for mercy as his humanity was taken away from him and his life ebbed away. Floyd was arrested because a shopkeeper alleged he used a counterfeit $20 bill. But a metaphor for what? Certainly the brutality of the lynching illuminated the worst nightmares of many African Americans that have for years complained about the structural and institutional racism that undergirds American life. Generations of parents have taught their children to show deference to the police in case their attitude and tone would excuse a trigger-happy officer, followed by the usual plea that he was acting in self-defence. My guest today, Hakeem Mohammed, grew up in the communities excluded by mainstream America. He argues that in our anger we should not undervalue the structural conditions that enable and safeguard those that treat their fellow man as subhuman. The structural racism that plagues American life comes from a broader ideology that shows disdain for non-European cultures and creeds. He argues powerfully that white supremacy cannot be separated from liberalism. In fact, liberal protagonists from Locke to Jefferson, Kant to Rawls, have all echoed the same mantra of America and Europe acting as a civilizing force in the world. The metaphor thus 
can extend to show how America treats others. The atrocities of Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo were conducted by the same people, nurtured within the same cultural climate. Hakim Muhammad is a public interest law scholar from Northeastern University School of Law, where he holds a Juris Doctoral degree. He has assisted litigation to hold police departments accountable for acts of brutality against African Americans and to exonerate African Americans who have been wrongly convicted of crimes. Hakim has taught seminars on African American legal studies at Harvard University, Michigan State, and UC Berkeley. He is also co-founder of Black Dawah Network, a Muslim organization that promotes Islamic values and ethics within inner-city Black American communities. Rabbi Hakim Muhammad, Jazakallah uh, Khair once again for joining us here on the Thinking Muslim podcast. Now, I really want to understand what happened a week back when um, George Floyd was arrested and uh, uh, he, he he was murdered by these police officers. I mean, from my perspective, and, and I'm sure for... Most people who've got uh, a semblance of love for humanity uh, were shocked by these events. Um, uh, so tell us the facts. What what happened and um, put into words how black America is feeling at the moment, Brother Hakeem. So what happened to George Floyd is something that has unfortunately been a common occurrence for many African-Americans throughout the United States, throughout history, the first relationship that African-Americans have with the police is that police functioned as slave keepers. They, when African-Americans would escape from the slave plantation, it, were, it was police officers who were commissioned to find them and to recapture them and to put them back in slavery. This is the origin that African-Americans first have with the police. And when you have a police force that is saturated with racism, that's saturated with ideological commitments that devalues the life of African-Americans, it becomes easy to utilize excessive force against African-Americans. And this is what we saw when, you know, our brother uh, George Floyd was pleading for his life, telling the officer that he could not breathe the officer continued to put his knee on him. He wouldn't allow him to get a break. And this is why it's it's really important to sort of look at some of the ideological drivers of police brutality against African-Americans at large. Hakeem, I may be mistaken here, but it seems to me that you're implying that uh, this case shouldn't be taken in isolation and that uh, there is a, a greater problem that one needs to address uh, if that is the case, what is that problem and how should we as Muslims uh, respond to that? Sure. So I think, especially as Muslims, when we think of some of the most grotesque human rights abuses perpetrated against the Ummah in contemporary times, we think of Guantanamo Bay, we think of Abu Ghraib, and yet there is a direct link between some of these human rights abuses that were perpetrated against Muslims in Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay as in the police brutality facing African-Americans at large. So we saw imagery coming from Abu Ghraib that showed American soldiers brutalizing Muslims in the most inhumane ways, images of dogs being placed in, in the faces of Muslims, naked Muslims being faced on top of each other, Muslims being tied on leashes as though 
they were just animals. And yet we should look at some of the backgrounds of some of the US Army soldiers and US Army personnel who oversaw some of this torture in Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib. And we should trace their career trajectory because in tracing their career trajectory, we will see what brutality that African-Americans have been facing at the hands of the police. So for example, one of the individuals who was responsible for the sodomy, for the torture, for humans, Muslims being leashed against each one another, like they were dogs, was a US Army uh, interrogator by the name was Charles Grainer. Yet there's a background of Charles Grainer uh, before he became a military personnel in Abu Ghraib that many are un unaware of. Prior to him serving in Abu Ghraib, he was a correctional guard in a majority African-American prison. And in that African-American, uh, majority African-American prison, there were a number of lawsuits that were filed against Charles Grainer. African-Americans alleged that he had been smashed, that, that they were being, that he was beating up inmates, that he was putting um, knives in their, in their meals. And there was one incident where he had put a knife in an African-American uh, man's meal and he accidentally ate it with the knife in it, calling him to like bleed profusely. And when he begged for help, Charles Grainer called him the N-word and told him to shut up. There's another lawsuit against Charles Grainer where he uh, where the African-American prisoners alleged that they beat, beat, beat them up and that these correctional guards wrote their name KKK in the blood of one of the inmates. And so this is Charles Grainer's background prior to overseeing the torture of Muslims in Abu Ghraib. When it comes to Guantanamo Bay, for example, it has become infamous as a place for where the US government carried out torture of Muslims. And one of the uh, US Army personnel who oversaw this torture, who was in fact commissioned by the US Secretary of Defense to oversee uh, torture in Guantanamo Bay was a man by the name of Richard Zaley. And in fact, Richard Zaley was responsible for torturing uh, many, many Muslims in uh, Guantanamo Bay and his signature style of torture was that he would threaten the family of some of the detainees saying that uh, we're going to, you know, rape your, your we're going to bring your uh, mother to Guantanamo Bay and we're going to rape her. And he would put uh, detainees, Muslim detainees in high stress positions prior uh, for high stress positions for long periods of time. And yet before overseeing a lot of this torture in Guantanamo Bay, before overseeing this mayhem in Guantanamo Bay, uh, Richard Zaley, he worked as a police detective in Chicago for nearly 40 years. And he was in fact commissioned, to, he, he, the uh, national, the US government commissioned him to go to Guantanamo Bay precisely because he was so good at extracting confessions and interrogating people. Yet what was his background in his methods of interrogating people as a Chicago police detective for over 40 years? In 1990, there was an African-American man by the name of Luthrell Boyd. He was a businessman who was extremely wealthy. And one day, uh, Richard Zaley said, he, he went into his house and he said that no inward is supposed to be living as wealthy as this. And he began to frame Luthrell Boyd for a crime that he did not commit. He began to torture him to confess to a crime that he did not commit. And he served 23 years in prison for a crime that he did not commit. And he was only recently exonerated when it came to light that Richard uh, Zaley had tortured him into giving a false confession. And so when we think of like CIA 
black sites that use in, in enhanced torture techniques in places like Guantanamo Bay, it has come to light that the uh, Richard Zaley, uh, Zaley, that he actually ran a, a torture site in Chicago prior to coming to Guantanamo Bay. And so one of his um, techniques, a lot of the techniques that the Chicago Police Department were utilizing includes um, applying electric shock to genitals uh, to force them to confess the crime, suffocating uh, African-Americans with plastic bags, burning uh, their skin with cigarettes. And particularly within Chicago, there were a lot of African-Americans who were alleging that they, they have been forced to, they have been beaten up, they have been interrogated with cruel methods and have been forced to uh, com uh, confess the crime that they didn't commit. And when they were telling the court, when they were telling the judges that I didn't really commit this crime, they beat me up, uh, they forced me to confess to this crime, the judges in those cases did not believe them. And so they, over hun hundreds of African-Americans serve decades uh, within prison, over 30 years in prison until it was revealed that they had been tortured, until the courts finally believed them that their, uh, that their confessions had been coerced. And so in, in these torture suspects within Chicago, they included young African-Americans. So uh, one individual, his name was uh, Mar Marcus Wiggins. M Marcus Wiggins was only 13 years old when he was forced to confess to a crime that he did not commit. And so the fact that we have Richard, Richard Zaley, who before uh, overseeing the torture at Guantanamo Bay, worked as a police officer uh, in Chicago, in the black community in Chicago for over 40 years. The fact that we have in Abu Ghraib, the fact before serving as the military personnel overseeing torture in Abu Ghraib, Charles Grainer worked in a predominantly African-American prison. These are what African-Americans are seeking to combat when they are out in the street, when they're protesting police brutality. And so if Muslims, if we can acknowledge the inhumanity of what's occurring in Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib, then what African-Americans are experiencing, that you can get a glimpse as to what African-Americans are experiencing in terms of police brutality when these very same individuals started off their careers policing African-Americans. And so this is essentially what African-Americans are responding to. So I want to dig deeper here. Um, what are the causes behind these sadistic individuals? If you're suggesting that there is a link between domestic policing and international policy when it comes to treating others in Iraq and Afghanistan, then what are the cultural causes surrounding uh, these sadistic individuals that allow them to to continue undetected? I think that we should not look at these individuals such as uh, Richard Zaley, as well as Charles Grainer as just being aberrations or just being um, bad apples or just being anomalies. Unfortunately, this there's been studies that corroborate the fact that police departments in the United States are overwhelmingly a racist. There was a study from Stanford University that did an analysis of over 100 million traffic stops that found that African Americans are more likely to be stopped unjustifiably by police and subjected to searches. Uh, there's been another study from the National Registry of Exonerations that found African Americans are more likely to be wrongfully convicted of a crime. And so while they constitute only 13% uh, of the population. The majority of defendants in America 
who are wrongfully convicted of crimes and later exonerated were African-American. And so I, when we think of the, the police, it's important to ask ourselves, what is the relationship of the African-American community with the police departments? And there have been several scholars that have analogized the relationship of police to the African-American community as that of a foreign military occupant to a colony that the relationship between mainstream America and ghettos or hoods in America and the police force is essentially the, the, uh, an equivalent of a mother country occupying, uh, occupying essentially a colony. This shows very clear what ideology is driving both police brutality domestically against African-Americans, as well as torture and imperialism and military in intervention in the Muslim world. And that would be white supremacy. The KKK was a terrorist organization that bombed African-American residential homes that carried out lynchings where these lynchings were family spectacles. There would be uh, white American families, they would bring their children to observe African-Americans being lit on fire, African-Americans being hung from trees and they would celebrate this like, a, like it was a sport. And that which shows the sort of animalistic way that white Americans viewed black Americans. And so I, I think we should go into like the heart of what of, of the ideology that is both shaping or influencing this police brutality occurring against African Americans domestically and the larger military intervention in the Muslim world. And we're going to see direct ties. Because at the heart of international relations theory is there, there's a theory known as democratic peacekeeping. And this theory, it traces its origin to enlightenment thinker, Immanuel Kant. And he developed a theoretical positioning of the world based upon the cultural and intellectual capacities of various people. And he placed Europeans at the top of this racial hierarchy followed by Asians, followed by Black Africans, and Africans and Native Americans being at the bottom, who he held as being intellectually incapable of self-governance. And so the theory, it's, it's predicated upon Hobbes' uh, notion of anarchy that holds that the international order will descend into disorder and chaos in absence of a democracy. And the democratic peacekeeping theory stipulates that the way to manage this anarchy is through the spread of democracy. And yet, even within these democracies, the theory stipulates that you need a hegemonic power, the hegemonic power that will keep the international order in line. And what this theory does, especially when you analyze the racist ideas at the root of this theory, that the non-white world is incapable of their own political uh, autonomy, their own ability for self-governance, it basically provides the rationale for power, for quote unquote civilized white Westphalian states to spread democracy at the, at, at the sword against the non-white world. And this is why the it's a, another version uh, is in contemporary times of the white man's burden. So we see uh, no coincidence between the torture carried out in Abu Ghraib and the fact that uh, Charles Grainer prior to overseeing this torture at Abu Ghraib was working as a correctional board in a majority African-American prison where he was beating up African-Americans, subjecting them to a wide variety of racial epithets. The ideological driver is white supremacy. 
But how deep is this? If you were to speak to some of the liberal protagonists today, they would argue that uh, maybe liberalism was entangled with this Darwinian idea of the superiority of races in the past, but it no longer really exhibits those qualities. And uh, liberalism uh, enters into foreign policy exchanges with other countries in on a level where it wants to spread equality and justice. Um, and secondly, I suppose um, liberalism has moved on. And uh, yes, America has its problems, but uh, some would argue, you know, how could a president like Barack Obama be elected to high office if uh, the country uh, was plagued with uh, institutional racism? So how would you respond to uh, to these uh, counter arguments. So the language changes, but the underlying ideology remains the same. It has become politically incorrect in, or in contemporary times to say these people are savages, these races are inferior, let's colonize them, let's imperialize them, let's uh, subjugate them. Instead, they change their discourse to make it seem more acceptable in the contemporary era that we live in. And scholars have given this a name that's called multicultural white supremacy, where they recruit people of color to be part of this larger imperialistic uh, mission. And so when you say that, uh, or what their argument is, as far as, oh, we're, we're not doing this to for explicitly racist reasons, we're doing it to bring equality, we're bringing it to bring free markets. Well, let, let's talk about, they can't get around the ideological commitment to some of the ideological ideas that shape uh, European notions of a free market, capitalistic notions of free market and the asymmetrical relationship that a free market creates in many of these societies, particularly in what in in places such as West Africa, where they in where in some countries you have people who are paying international monetary fund more on interest than on their own educational and health budgets. This is the impact that neoliberal economic theory is having in West Africa. And when you look at the tangible results of this theory, you, while you may have you know, a couple of people of color in their political offices at the top of the hierarchy, these are just in name only. The, the, when you look at like the, the true condition that the majority of people of, of color, of, of black people are living in, and the countries that have been victimized by this policy, it's very clear that this is white supremacy. And even for example, when you look at uh, Barack Obama and whether Barack Obama's, whether his election to the highest office in the United States, whether this actually made a difference in the lives of ordinary African-Americans, whether this meant that you know, African-Americans were least likely to be subjected to police brutality. It in fact did not. In fact, the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, as it is called, it actually originated under Barack Obama. And many in the African-American community were very distraught and very disappointed that Obama continued to demonstrate a lack of care for the African-American community when they were victimized by the police, even using discourse such as referring to protesters as thugs, no different than uh, the current president, Donald Trump. When you look at 
of, for example, social phenomenon such as housing, such as redlining and blockbusting, which keep African American communities segregated and in a desolated state. This did not change under President Barack Obama. The black white wealth gap, where there's been studies that indicate that even into the year uh, two, 2050, we're, we're talking about uh, years, decades into the future, the, the studies have confirmed that the black white wealth gap, whereby white people have more wealth than black, black, the, than black families, that this gap did not change under President Barack Obama. Uh, when it looks at just ba basic metrics of, of standard of living uh, for African-American commun communities, a, a black president did not tangibly uh, do anything to improve their material lives. And so when you see a black president such as Barack Obama, these are more of a symbolic, it's more of a symbolic gesture than anything that tangibly results in the upliftment of African-American communities. And we can apply this to international uh, relations. I mean, how many Muslims did Barack Obama drone strike? What are the, what are the justifications for drone striking uh, Muslims in, in, in Yemen and other parts of the Muslim world? You look at it and it deals with uh, the uh, Supreme Emergency Exemption by John Rawls, who said that under certain, even under liberal theory, where they generally respect, quote unquote, the value to life, that under, if it's necessary to advert a, a disaster, that you can kill someone who is innocent. And so the idea of a civilian casualty, this is justified when you look at it under a utilitarian perspective. And this is a theory that Barack Obama utilized to justify drone strikes of Muslims in the Muslim world. And so this is why we need to look at it when we, when we think of multicultural white supremacy and the fact that you can have people of color who are serving in positions of power that still, when you look at the reality of the situation, there's still this asymmetrical relationship between black people, between the quote unquote third world and white West Philian nations. A number of videos have been doing the rounds on social media in the last few days. And I was struck by one particular video which went viral. And I think it was from um, Charlotte in North Carolina. And it was a, a conversation between uh, two uh, two individuals, and and uh, really they were debating uh, the limits to protest and and how far you should go. And and one uh, one of the protesters was extremely angry, and you know he he even exclaimed that he was willing to die for uh, for some sort of justice. And the other one uh, was imploring him to see sense in in, in a sense and and to uh, to consider uh, how to fight the structural problems in a more coherent way. And, and you could see actually in, in both of their arguments some truth, right? You know, it was if if America, if we didn't have free nights of, uh, uh, of protests, um, uh, I suspect this would have been whitewashed in, in the media like all other uh, examples of police brutality. But at the same time, uh, the the looting, which uh, seems to be, I mean, you know, I would like your view on this, but a looting that is associated with these protests uh, could could uh, change public opinion and could harm the the greater cause of some for some form of justice. So, where do you stand on on uh, this debate? So let's look at the origins of the United States as a country in relationship to obtaining its independence from Britain. The Boston Tea Party, 
the that that is revered in American history as a political protest in which American colonists were fed up with taxation without representation. They looted tea. They threw um, thousands of dollars worth of merchandise down the drain, and they they threw it in the ocean. And this was the impetus of the American Revolutionary War. And this is a, a an event that's revered in history as an example of a successful protest. It's looked at the individuals who were behind this, the founding fathers, their view in history as being laudatory, as being great men, yet this was a, a tactic that they utilized. And so what about African-Americans who were looted from Africa, who were forced to work in America against their will for over uh, three centuries, where they're continuing to live in neighborhoods where they're deprived of, of economic opportunities, deprived of everyday opportunities that, that are essential to a civilized society. Of course, there's gonna be anger, there's gonna be um, outrage. And so if people want to condemn African-Americans or individuals who are engaging in looting, then you should condemn uh, some of the, the, the founding fathers of, of, of America, because African-Americans, they're enduring conditions that were far greater in magnitude and far greater in oppression than anything that the founding fathers of the United States faced. And any, the taxation without representation fails, is nowhere near the level of police terrorism, police brutality, and other forms of oppression that African-Americans have faced at the hands of the police. And so this is why even Dr. Martin Luther King, who was an advocate of nonviolence, who was an advocate of peaceful protest, even he had to say that these riots are the language of the unheard. And because they're, they're, they, when people have feel that they have no other means for tangible political change, this is a tactic that individuals um, resort to. And so, I mean, some of the, the, I'm less sympathetic to a store. I mean, if it's a small business, if it's like a small business, um, you know, especially, you know, black business that are, you know, victims of, of looting and, and st stolen merchandise, those are obviously things that hurt those business. But when it comes to these multinational corporations, I mean, these, in the, these a lot of these corporations are responsible for looting of, the third world. A lot of these corporations are in are in in them of themselves have a history of obtaining wealth from uh, from slavery. If you look at individuals, if you look at, and a lot of these corporations were founded at a time when African Americans were inhibited from really joining, uh, from really establishing business uh, enterprises by law, and where they set up a variety of economic hurdles for African Americans to engage in the free market. And so we can discuss you know, the, the tactics, whether this is a viable tactic, but my, I see my role is I'm always going to indict the conditions that create the impetus for this behavior and as opposed for moralizing on individuals who engage in this type of behavior. And this is consistent with even Martin Luther King who said language uh, riots are the language of the unheard. And in fact, when you look at African-American political history, I mean, if you look at African-American political history and how African-Americans obtain certain rights, riots actually played a, a fundamental role in it. People think that, you know, African-Americans obtained rights due to the civil rights 
um, legislation. But if you look at why they passed civil rights legislation in the first place, a major driver behind it was they were afraid of urban riots. They were afraid of urban protests. And so it was seen as a concession. In fact, um, there was one individual, uh, one brother, uh, he, he, uh, H. Rat Brown, H. Rat Brown was a very prominent African-American political um, activist. He, he converted to Islam later, later in his life uh, after some of his, um, after he, his period of incarceration. But H. Rat Brown, he would go from city to city where he would like stir up African-Americans against the Jim Crow laws, against other manifestations of institutional racism. And as a result of his speeches, you know, African-Americans um, would riot, would riot and the state was, was extremely scared of these riots that were occurring. They would pass little legislation to get rid of certain forms of, of, of racial discrimination. So when you look at it historically, it's, it's not the, the fact that African-Americans believe that sometimes that they have to riot to get their rights or to be heard is not historically unprecedented. And we can talk about uh, you know, the Islamic permissibility of it, but the fact that African-Americans, uh, that many in the African-American community feel that they have to resort to this tactic to be heard, to have basic rights, that says something fundamentally about the society that they live in. And so I think we should keep our, our critiques of the society and the conditions that the society is uh, creating and fostering. African-Americans, they've tried peaceful means of protest. They, they used to have peaceful um, African-American, uh, a lot of African-American protesters during the civil rights movement where they would still utilize um, dogs against them. And there's been several, even in contemporary times, despite the brutality, despite the mayhem that African-Americans are facing, where police still resort to violence, regardless of the peaceful means of the protests. Yeah, there is some suspicion that uh, uh, the police have um, put into the protesters uh, instigators of violence in order to undermine the protests. I mean, how how far do you uh, do you accept uh, whether that is taking place? This is certainly going on, um, without a doubt. There have certainly mm-hmm. been a- agents. And th- this is, um, I mean, a known tactic of police departments, um, entrapment, and as well as instigating um, certain certain things. But I mean, there is also, you know, legitimate African Americans who believe that they have to resort to this mm-hmm. to have their cause heard. To that riots are, as Martin Luther King said, that these riots are the language of the unheard. And so, if we're going to cast moral aspersions towards these African-American uh, protesters who are enduring conditions that are far greater than what the founding fathers and what they, the antics that were engaged in in the Boston Tea Party, then we, we should engage, uh, we should indict the founding fathers and we should indict them for creating the conditions that have led to this type of behavior. And how do you understand the behavior of uh, President Trump? He seems to be uh, firmly on the side of uh, law enforcement and uh, those people who uh, you would probably argue uh, would have white supremacist tendencies. And he uh, has yesterday blamed an organization called Antifa. Uh, can you comment on, on that and his actions? Yeah, so Antifa, I, I mean, I'm not really a fan of them. They're a far, far leftist um, type of uh, group. 
that, um, I mean, it's not really an organic African-American group, but I guess they feel that what they're doing is in the cause of bringing attention to the issue of police brutality. I'm not really a fan of them, but definitely Donald Trump. I mean, he, he's labeling um, these groups as a terrorist organization. Okay, what about the police departments who engaged in terrorism against African-Americans who have a history of torture, have a history of abuse, have a history of destruction against African-Americans. These from the position of ordinary African-Americans are terrorists. And when you look at in, in Chicago, for example, there are many black mothers who grew up you know, in fear that their sons may be killed or, or hounded by the police and put in uh, police custody. And so they start teaching their children from very early ages how to interact with the police and how to deal with the police so that this doesn't happen to them. And so this is a, a manifestation of the terror. There's been studies that confirm that these incidents of police brutality that are broadcasted within social media, that these even harm the mental health of African-Americans at large, that it has a detrimental aspect, a detrimental impact rather of the mental health of African-Americans. And so this is a result of, of terrorism. And so Donald Trump, I mean, he's absolutely um, part of this white supremacist project to terrorize African-Americans. There's no doubt about it. He was an advocate of a policy known as stop and frisk. Stop and frisk was a policy that they implemented in several urban areas where that it was against mainly African-Americans where anytime they the police suspected you of a crime, regardless of whether there was any probable cause, they would just say, you have black skin, let me search you, let me search your person, let me search you for weapons to see if you have any weapons. And the majority of the time, they found absolutely nothing incriminating. It was a tactic of police harassment against African Americans. Donald Trump, throughout his election campaign, he was a proponent of this stop and frisk policy that later got ruled unconstitutional. Donald Trump, when it comes to the issue of, of Chicago, he actually said that the Chicago police, they need to get tougher. And it's like the, the Chicago police have a history of implementing regimes of torture against African-Americans. So what does he mean by they need to get uh, tougher? And so he's, his election cycle was um, provoked or it was predicated upon stirring up racial animus as well as appeasing white supremacists at large for to let him know that he's a law and order president that will defend the police and defend uh, police brutality. And so, I mean, Donald Trump, like his historic predecessors, is a part of this tradition of white supremacy against the African-American community. This year, we're marking the 55th anniversary of the death of Malcolm X. And uh, Malcolm X really did fight for a cause uh, for... Um, for black people in America, and, and that cause seems to be unfinished. I mean, how would you place Malcolm X's ideology in relation to uh, the solution to the problems uh, black people seem to continue to face today? So when we look at the history of Malcolm X, we need to remember that Malcolm X's father was killed by the KKK. The, it's widely believed that his father, the KKK, kept harassing Malcolm X's father. Malcolm X's father was a, a proponent of black rights, of black civil rights, and the KKK would often go to his house to intimidate him, to intimidate his family. And one day the KKK actually 
kidnapped his father and they believe that his, that his father was actually assassinated, was actually killed by the KKK, which was a terrorist organization. It's very unclear of the circumstances of the death of Malcolm X's um, father. Some believe that he was tied to a railroad track and by the KKK with the train um, running under over his bodies, but there's a wide variety of theories. But when the KKK killed his Malcolm X's father, the government never prosecuted those individuals in the KKK for killing his father. In fact, they tried to say that his father committed suicide. And so that never prosecuted for his crime. So you can imagine that this is something, this is a, a pivotal a moment in Malcolm X's childhood where his father was uh, killed by the KKK. And, and even as Malcolm X um, got older, when he joined the Nation of Islam, there was an incident in which the police had terror. The, Malcolm X came to prominence in the African-American community for speaking out against police brutality. There was an incident in which the uh, police department had beat up uh, an individual in the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X organized the organized them and they went out into the police department, uh, the police headquarters and demanded justice for this brother and demanded that he not uh, be killed and that he, that this individual be returned back to uh, the Nation of Islam's temple as they called it at that time. And so, and it was from this incident that Malcolm X for standing up against police brutality became widely respected and widely renowned in the African-American community. Prior to this incident, he wasn't um, that well known, but after this incident where he decided to get a couple of, of his brothers to go to this police headquarters and demand justice for this individual who had uh, been mistreated and abused by the police, his name, he became like a legend in the African-American communities and many African-Americans uh, began to look up to him. And there was even another incident where the, in, in California, where the police, had had actually innocent shot an innocent individual who had belonged in the uh, nation of islam and actually paralyzed him and malcolm x went over to california to uh, demand justice for this individual and he was actually paralyzed as a result of an unjustified um shooting by the police that was harassing um the nation of islam's temples at that time and so this is uh, why malcolm x was such a strong proponent of self-defense and the ability of black people to protect themselves from police brutality. And in fact, in, in many of his speeches, it was Malcolm X who originated this critique that if it's wrong for America to utilize violence in these foreign countries to achieve its military objectives, who is America to tell black people that they can't defend themselves from police, from members of the KKK? And so th this is the uh, critique that Malcolm X brought forth and his political insights are directly relevant in contemporary times. When you look at um, the police brutality that African-Americans are facing and the torture, there are many individuals who are, who are seriously considering um, self-defense against the uh, police because they look at the police occupation of their community as being similar to a foreign military power occupying its colony, that this is the relationship that the police has with the African-American uh, community. And so this is, uh, not only did, you know, white supremacist violence shape Malcolm X's early life since he was a, a child, but it would shape his later years as well. And so many people are also unaware of the history that 
the police departments within the United States in collaboration with the FBI had a history of assassinating black political leaders. One of those leaders was the leader of the uh, Black Panther Party for Self-Defense uh, by the name of Fred Hampton. And the Chicago police and the FBI conspired to assassinate him. When it comes to Malcolm X's own assassination, it's been revealed that the bodyguards that Malcolm X had on the day of his assassination, one of them was an actual member of the uh, New York Police Department, that he thought that this was his Muslim brother, his bodyguard. But unfortunately, um, it was later revealed that he was in fact an agent, that he was a member of the police department. And this was the individual who was quote unquote set to bodyguard him for the, uh, on the day of his assassination. Now, I want to understand the following from you. I mean, we, we know that uh, liberals claim that uh, they created a colorblind society, a post-race society, which really hasn't happened. And uh, it only takes uh, some surface level incident for racism to resurface in these communities. But we hear from many Muslims that Islam creates a colorblind society. And, and yes, it does. And alhamdulillah, that's a, that's a, a very uh, laudable cause uh, to, uh, to, to, to portray. But is it as simple as that? Um, I mean, how do we deal with these uh, endemic racial stereotypes that we may all still have? Sure. So Islam, if the ethics and the moral framework of Islam are actually adhered to by Muslims and Muslims, these values uh, that Islam provides of Tawheed, that we've been put into nations and tribes to get to know one another, that the best of us, that the Arab has no superiority over the non-Arab, that the non-Arab has no superiority over the Arab, that the white has no superiority over the black, that the black has no superiority over the white. These are the ethics that Islam brought to the world before any contemporary anti-racist movement. These are ethics that are enshrined in, in Islam and that as Muslims, we should be looking to adhere to, not just, but they actually have to be lived ethics. And I think when you look at the diversity of Islam and who constitutes, you know, the Ummah, we have Muslims from West Africa, Muslims from Indonesia, Muslims throughout the, it's a very, very diverse religion because Islam has been able to solve so many people throughout different geographic areas of the world have turned to to Islam and they have seen uh, the beauty of Islam and have turned to it across racial grounds, across ethnic grounds, across nationalistic uh, grounds. And so when you look at particularly within American society, Malcolm X, he, he was of the belief that that it, that Islam, that what he saw, the brotherhood, the, the, the sort of rituals that were enshrined at Malcolm X's pilgrimage to Hajj, she believed that those uh, rituals, that those ethics that were provided in, in Malcolm, that Malcolm X witnessed with his own eyes as he made Hajj, that that could have an impact in solving some of the racial problems and racial animus within the United States. But on its fundamental level, Islam that when we look at, when you think about liberalism, you have to think about liberalism's is connections to white supremacy at its or, origin. And we can talk about contemporary liberalism, but at its origins, John Locke, John Locke was an investor in the transatlantic slave trade. John Locke actually wrote treatise that, that, that gave slave masters the right to kill black slaves with impunity. In fact, he said that if, they, if slave masters could not kill their black slaves with immunity, 
from criminal prosecution. He didn't believe that this was a true form of slavery. And so John Locke, who is the one of the foundational thinkers of liberalism of Western civilization, he believed this that slave masters should be able to kill their slaves with immunity. Islam brings a whole different worldview, uh, a worldview that's based upon Tawhid, a worldview that's not based upon white supremacy, that's not based on any form of racial supremacy, but prioritizes the supremacy of God and submitting to this one God. And this is what Malcolm X um, believed had the power to transform the racial animus in America and to transform the thinking of white supremacy in America. But I, I, I want to add to this analysis that these ethics that Islam enshrines, of course, they have to be actually lived, that you know, we people should actually give, be active in dawah and active in calling to these values that Islam calls to within the United States, or else we will see more of the same. When an individual converts to Islam, you know, you can't just keep the same. A mentality after converting to Islam as before Islam, that if a white brother converts to Islam, that's great, but you have to sort of be conscious of indicting some of the prior white supremacist uh, worldview that is so commonplace in the United States. It's if everyone converted to Islam in the United States today, that wouldn't be sufficient to resolve the white black wealth gap. It, it could improve interpersonal relations between you know different brothers now that they've all entered the fold of Islam but when you look at something as historically structured as the black white wealth gap or you look at the fact that African Americans have been put into uh, neighborhoods as a result of segregation that have toxic waste dumps that environmental racism is what they called it where African Americans were strategically placed in neighborhoods that were disproportionately environmentally hazardous poisonous environments to live in as a result of the legacy of segregation that they are still living in some of these neighborhoods today. So it would take, yeah, Islam has a lot to transform society, but the ethics of Islam need to be adhered to. And in addition to that, we have to really put our brains toward what tangibly are we going to do to actually transform American society to rectify and remedy the history of racial discrimination in the United States. Okay, Muhammad Jazakallah Khair for joining us today, and uh, really, uh, it's been uh, it's been enlightening to uh, to get a, an understanding of uh, what what's happening there in America. And uh, the last time we spoke to you, Hakim, uh, you were preparing for um, a series of conferences uh, as part of uh, the Black Dawa movement. Uh, how is how is of course, um, COVID nineteen has probably come in the way of a lot of the face to face work. But but how is uh, the uh, the DAO going there? Alhamdulillah, it's been going good. So we did our event in Chicago in an area known as uh, Old Block in uh, Inglewood, Chicago, mm-hmm. where we spoke to over a hundred brothers and sisters about Islam. Those who were interested in learning more received a free copy of the autobiography of Malcolm X as well as the mm-hmm. Quran. Then around February, we, we organized in about 10 different cities in the United States simultaneously in Omaha, in Oakland, in Chicago, in Boston, in Virginia, in Houston, Texas, uh, different Islamic outreach events that help convey the message of Islam within inner city Black America. And this work is important. It's uh, part of what Malcolm X wanted to do towards the uh, later years of his life. If you read the last interview of Malcolm X's life with Saeed Ramadan, 
Malcolm X spoke about wanting to plant seeds of Islam in our communities. He spoke about wanting to correct misinformation that he had previously taught about Islam to the community at large. And he spoke about uh, really just wanted to convey that message of Islam within inner city black communities. And he also said that he feels that the Muslim world has failed to uh, really uh, pay attention to a lot of the problems facing black America and that the black community was neglected in terms of that. I would encourage everyone to read the last interview that Malcolm X gave in his life before he was uh, assassinated because it can help you know, guide the political uh, trajectory in the United States um, today. And so alhamdulillah, you know, as a result of COVID-19, a lot of our events got postponed, but so we've been working through um, prison dawah, um, speaking to brothers in, in prison um, through electronic, through, through the internet, um, you know, about Islam. So alhamdulillah, it's been going uh, going well. Keep us in your doors. Appreciate you for bringing me on, to, on today, brother. Barakalafiq, inshallah. And, uh... Uh, and just remind us, how can uh, someone uh, connect with your organization or find out more? Uh, you can visit BlackDowerNetwork.com. If you go on BlackDowerNetwork.com, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to see a wide variety of uh, different resources. For example, if you go to infographics, you'll see you know what great Black intellectuals have said about Islamic civilization in Africa, from W.E.B. Du Bois to uh, Edward Blyden. Um, you're going to see different campaigns that we've we've done in the past in Omaha, Nebraska, in Atlanta. Um, you can look at some of um, the lectures that we've done dealing with uh, Afrocentrism or Black Orientalism, uh, Black Orientalist critiques of Islam. I know, especially in London, uh, you, you all may see, your audience may be familiar with individuals such as um, what's his name. I, I see a lot of individuals at High Park Speaker Corner, hmm. uh, Sarah Garvey. Uh, other clowns like that. Uh, uh, well, if you look at blackdowernetwork.com, it provides a wide variety of resources for dealing with um, Black Orientalism or Afrocentrism that people can be sure to check out, inshallah. Brilliant. Jazakallah khair. May Allah aid you with your work, inshallah. And thank you for your time today. I mean, may Allah bless you as well, my brother. Mm-hmm.